Welcome to Recloseted Radio. This is the top-rated podcast for slow fashion founders. Whether you're thinking about launching a slow fashion brand, scaling an existing clothing brand, or making a brand more environmentally friendly, we have you covered. I'm your host, Selena Ho, the founder and CEO of Recloseted. Each week, I'm sharing my proven strategies or interviewing industry experts. Without any further ado, let's get started. Welcome back to Recloseted Radio. I'm really excited about this episode because I was joined by Stephanie, who is the co-founder of Queen of Raw. If you haven't heard of Stephanie or Queen of Raw before, she is a corporate attorney turned climate fintech entrepreneur. And Queen of Raw is a no-code enterprise software to intelligently resell and recycle unused inventory on raw chain, measure, report, and turn pollution into profit. Prior to starting Queen of Raw, Stephanie worked as a lawyer in the fashion, media and entertainment, startup, and technology industries. She's an advocate for women in business and sustainability, and her companies have been featured in NPR, Good Morning America, The New York Times, Fortune, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. Stephanie is a force to be reckoned with, and she shares so many valuable tips and strategies in this episode, so make sure you listen. And before we dive into this episode, I did want to mention that if you would like to make your brand more conscious or more sustainable and work with us to help make that happen, spots are filling up to work with us in a sustainability consulting capacity this year. So if you're interested, we can help you with your strategy, making sure that you achieve your objectives with the timelines, the budgets, and the resources that you have. We will also work with you to create a roadmap because sustainability is not achieved overnight and this is going to be a multi-year process so we can help you break that down. And then of course, on a more tactical basis, we can help you source better materials as well as more ethical manufacturers. We can also help you with reporting and analyzing your impact so that you are able to measure this internally, but also communicate this to your customers as well. And then last but not least, we can also help you with your communication strategy. So how do you communicate that you are now being more intentional and sustainable without coming across as greenwashing? These are all items that we are equipped to help you and support you with. And so if you are interested in our sustainability consulting services, feel free to book a complimentary discovery call with me, Selena Ho, the founder of Recloseted, and we can see if it's a fit to work together. You can book your call at www.recloseted.com call or click the link in the show notes. And now let's dive into this episode with Stephanie. Welcome to Recloseted Radio, Stephanie. I'm really looking forward to interviewing you and I'm really excited for the discussion. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Feelings mutual. Thanks for having me. Of course. And to kick things off, can you give us a quick introduction of yourself and also an overview of your career? Because I know you started in law and now you're in the circular fashion space, you are in the sustainability space and also in the tech space. So how did that transition happen? Absolutely. So hi, everyone. My name is Stephanie Benedetto, and I'm the queen of raw. And, you know, I come from a family of over 100 years in fashion 
textiles and supply chain. So I very much grew up around this industry. It's actually funny. I grew up around my great grandfather and I would hear the old stories of the old school way of doing business. And he came over on a ship from Austria in 1896. He landed at Ellis Island and he actually settled into the Lower East Side of New York, the original Jewish garment district. And obviously as an immigrant chasing the American dream, he had to make a living for his family. And what did he do? He would find materials and supplies nearby, old fabrics and furs and things immigrants had brought over on the ships with them, but they weren't using anymore. And he would repurpose them by hand into the most beautiful fashion garments. And he sold them to local customers. And it was an incredibly profitable, successful business. And funny enough, a lot of his fur coats, uh, I still wear 100 plus years later. And he didn't talk about it as sustainability. But at the end of the day, that's very much what it was, right? For people, for planet, for profit, it just made sense. So I use that a lot as inspiration for the work that we do. You kindly noted that I didn't do the family route originally. (laughs) I was on Wall Street as a corporate attorney, but I did end up specializing in fashion, technology, and sustainability. So I guess at the end of the day, kind of get back to our roots and who we are and what means something to us. And then when the market crashed in 08 and 09, I kind of took that as my opportunity. Go out, build a business, go change the world. And, you know, kind of similar to what's going on in the world today, turning that into an opportunity. And that's when I had a prior startup to Queen of Raw. We invented this new leather alternative and it was really beautiful and unique. And it kind of hit a note in the market. But I would go to all these factories, brands and warehouses and see all this perfectly good stuff, right? Just sitting in warehouses, collecting dust or fabric and and finished goods that were going to be burned or sent to landfill. And I said, it's great that I'm selling you this awesome new leather alternative, sustainable fabric, but you have all this perfectly good stuff. And I said, this is just a supply demand mismatch. And how can we use technology to provide the bridge? So that's what kind of led to the birth of Queen of Raw. So like I said, I guess at the end, we do get back to our roots and who we are. And it truly inspires the work I do every day. It's funny how life works, right? Because I find that a lot of things come full circle. And so can you tell us a little bit more about Queen of Raw? Absolutely. So when we first started looking at this issue, right, of bedstock, waste, unused inventory, um, before the pandemic, it was about $120 billion with a B worth of unused fabric that just sit in warehouses collecting dust are going to be burned or sent to landfill. Through the pandemic, that number is now closer to $288 billion and continues to grow. So really valuable, beautiful stuff that traditionally just gets lost. And so we built Queen of Raw at the beginning as a marketplace, right? Like a thread up, a real, real, a Poshmark, a Depop, but for fabric. Everybody kind of seemed to be paying attention to finished goods, but nobody was looking at this opportunity of all this beautiful, unused raw material and textile waste. And so we kind of opened up the platform, anyone from a student maker, crafter, quilter, to the biggest brands and retailers in the world, all across the globe, can buy and sell their unused fabric on queenofraw.com. Keep it out of landfill and obviously turn what would be pollution into profit. And so, you know, the marketplace has been growing and what I'm excited to share a little bit about today as well is where we've grown and expanded our offering. Marketplace is still there and it grows every day. But for larger companies to enterprise Fortune 500, from fast fashion to luxury haute couture, they need more to support them, 
right? They wanted to be able to participate in our solution, but as a larger enterprise company with hundreds of supply chain steps across the globe, right? And, and very complex supply chains. How do you participate in a marketplace quickly, easily, automated, at scale, right? Globally. Those were the challenges. And so to support large to enterprise, and I very much believe we're all part of the problem and we're all a part of the solution. We have now opened up full enterprise, no code software in the cloud. And this really is to support these larger companies. That's where you can automatically through our solution, find the waste in your supply chain and then take action. Now that you know about it, you could choose to reuse it. Or if you're not going to reuse it, you could choose to resell it. Or if it's proprietary or past a shelf life and you can't resell it, now you can recycle it or donate it. And we take care of all those activities, map, measure, and trace it, um, and help them minimize it going forward. So that's what I'm really excited to, to help grow and support with everyone around the world. That's amazing. I hadn't realized that you were providing tools to brands. And so in that regard, it's really exciting for me because when you can measure your impact, I think that's when change can really happen. Yeah, I, I think the key word you just said, right, you have to make it measured and impactful. And, you know, I found so often in this conversation with that S word sustainability, it meant so many things to so many people. And it's exciting because it's getting talked about now today. It's the right top three priority for every C-suite. But so much of the conversation is focused on people and planet. Like you, that's at the core of why we do what we do and why we care about it. But how does that also translate into a business's profit? And I think that's the piece we often didn't get right in the conversation early on and where we've spent a lot of our time showing how much money can be saved and made by companies adopting this solution. How does this grow your bottom and top line? And that is so important because in order to get a big company to participate, it has to make economic sense. Otherwise, why would they, right? They have stakeholders to answer to and customers. And for us as end consumers, when you go to buy a product, a lot of us who do care about sustainability try to find the more sustainable option, but sometimes it's not available or sometimes it's just so expensive, not everyone can afford it. And so if we can use new business models like what we've done with Queen of Road to unlock value, to give you the same quality good, but at a discount and with a sustainable Im impact, how do you say no to that? And that's what I'm really excited about in driving this conversation forward. Yeah, I love it. And so you talked a little bit about the journey to building Queen of Raw, but I'm also curious about building up your marketplace because you need to build up the inventory and also the customers. And so how is that journey and how did you balance both? I love that question, right? You're exactly right. A marketplace, you need supply and you need demand. And it's kind of a chicken and egg. Which one do you do first? How do you make the match? And how do you give meaning to your community so the flywheel actually takes off? And I believe marketplaces can be the most powerful organizations in the world. I mean, we think Amazon, we think Alibaba, right? But you have to get that flywheel going. And so for us, we decided that the first thing we were going to do quickly and easily was get a website up. We didn't even have any product to sell at the time, but we had a point of view. We knew that there was value and opportunity in these materials. We wanted to start building the community and learn from our customers what they really wanted. So we got the website up, right? We got this story going on queenofraw.com and we started learning from our customers and most importantly, building the demand. And what we learned was that the demand was 
massive. People were coming now through the pandemic more than ever, but even in the early ages of our, of our company in 2018, people were coming and wanting to search more. And I was learning, what are they searching for? What do they want? What do they need? And I was talking to them. The demand was there. And that was funny because a lot of people, when I first started looking at this business model, they assumed and understood why businesses would want to sell this stuff. But why would anyone want to buy it, right? We proved that there is massive demand and people want access to these materials. They want quick and easily available at their fingertips at a discount with a sustainable story to tell, right? That mattered. This demand was there. And then now that we had the demand, we could go back to the big brands and the retailers who obviously have a ton of the supply and the big manufacturers and say, look, we've got the demand. We know you've got the supply, right? And now let's build up the supply. And what's interesting about that is we actually learned through our marketplace for what we were doing. And the reason we were first to market with it and other people hadn't really done it is because the supply was the harder part. And that's what we ended up focusing all of our time and resources and energy on. Because we know it's out there, right? You and I, we've seen it sitting in warehouses and pounds and pounds and hundreds of thousands to millions of yards. But how do you get it quickly and easily from that warehouse to the web, and then into those buyer hands. That was going to be the magic. And that is why we built a lot of the supplier tools that I just mentioned, because that allows us to do this quickly, easily, automated, at scale, integrate into inventory systems, and keep everything in sync. And so that's really where we were able to now build up the supply to match the demand. And of course, like any marketplace, right? They just start building up the supply. Now we'll start building up again the demand and back and forth it goes. But that's how we started thinking about it early on. Yeah, no, I love that. And also seeing that opportunity to automate in the supply chain side, I think that was really smart on your part as well. Well, when you think about a marketplace, right? A marketplace to sell waste is great. But how do you get companies not thinking that that's just a band-aid on the problem? Oh, you got waste? Go sell it on Queen of Raw, make some money. That's an important first step. But ultimately, waste is very inefficient. It's very expensive. It takes a lot of time, money, personnel, resources warehouse space to have this weight. So ultimately, how do we solve the problem? How do we understand for businesses, why did you have this waste? And how can we intelligently minimize it going forward? And that's a big part of where we're growing because we want them to manage this stuff better and minimize it. Now, do I ultimately ever think we're going to not need the marketplace because we've solved the waste problem? Well, I hope so, but inherent in kind of the process of production and making things there is going to be some form of waste, but let's be intelligent about it. Let's minimize it. Let's do better tomorrow. Yeah, I know. I love that. And so I'm also curious about the technology piece because it seems like you're creating a lot of your own technology, you're coding, you're using AI. And so can you talk a little bit about that process and how you and your team build up that expertise and decide what to invest in? It's a good point. So obviously we knew we needed to spend time and resources on the supplier side, right? And how we get this information quickly and easily about these products from the warehouse to the web, as I mentioned, to buyer's hand. And in order to do that, we knew we were going to have to leverage powerful technology to do that. And so that's where we were going to spend our time and resources at a team and in how we do that. But if I'm doing my job right, right, hopefully my customers don't have to worry about the technology because we make it user-friendly, quick, easy, cost-effective, no code at their fingertips in order to participate. But for the fun of talking through right now, right, what kind of technology we leverage it and why we do what we do for the supplier tools, in order to get all this stuff quickly and easily into our system, 
we realized early on that we needed to be able to integrate into their inventory management system. And so now we have these live feeds where if they're on SAP or other inventory systems, we can actually plug and play into their system, find anything that's been sitting as waste for a certain time period, whether it's raw materials or finished goods, and then they can automatically bring it into our engine and take action. So that was the first step, right, of automating the onboarding process and making it quick and easy from an integration, or if they don't want to integrate from a CSV file or CSV files and get all this data in. But now that this data is in there, right, you have this interesting thing, two things to think about. One is that they, this is all dark data. They didn't know about all this stuff, right, for so long. This stuff had been sitting in those warehouses or in somebody's head or on some Excel spreadsheet that with handwritten notes in a desk, and nobody knew about it. And we've now brought this to light. So even before the company takes action or anybody does anything with this beautiful dead stock, we have this information. We know what is it made of? Where does it come from, right? Where does it sit? How much is actually there? And we leverage blockchain, that B word blockchain, in order to provide integrity and authenticity to the data. So we can speak and the company can speak confidently about what they have and what it's made of and what it is, right? And so that bringing that dark data to light and helping them understand as a business across all these factories and warehouses and brands, what's going on? In our dashboard, it's very valuable for them to see that right at their fingertips. So that's a bit where the blockchain comes in. And obviously, as you read this data, a bit where some of that machine learning AI comes in, helping them understand why they had it and how to minimize it going forward. In addition to kind of the dark data piece and bringing that to life, there's also the fact now in our software that they can take action on it. Click a button and reuse it now that they know about it. As I mentioned, click a button and resell it, click a button and recycle it or donate it. And what's important about that is now that they can do that, how do you actually track where it goes? What happens to it? And the impact that that action had on the business and communicated also to the end consumer. And that's the other piece that we spent a lot of time on. We partnered with um, MIT Solve and we had a team of data scientists and we spent the past almost year and a half building out algorithms on chain, no code, to help our sellers, our big brands, retailers, and suppliers know what they've done with this stuff and the impact that that has. How to quantify the water, the carbon emissions, the chemicals, and the waste and dollars that were saved by their activities. But then we don't stop there. We actually communicate that impact on chain to the buyer or recycler or donation partner who actually takes that good. And they too get to contribute and be a part of that impact and know the impact that their purchase or their donation had and be a part of something bigger. And I think that's really important that we make it quick and easy for everyone to participate with little actions that in the aggregate are very powerful and that we communicate that to the companies, we communicate that to the end consumer. And I know you're nodding, right? Like we know it matters to end consumers, especially millennials and Gen Zs through the pandemic, right? This is what matters. This is what they care about. But what's interesting was also to see how much this matters now to brands and retailers and big Fortune 500 companies. Part of that is because their consumers care about it, of course. But part of that has also been what's going on in the world. Their supply chains were disrupted through the pandemic, right? And you're a company making something in the business. You need to be able to make that thing. And the power of our solution is it allowed them to find what they need when they need it and away from an area impacted by disruption while also being able to share that powerful, sustainable impact they had. 
So they're very happy to do it. And they're also up because of all the recent changes in the laws. And I'm sure you're tracking them as well, right? In the EU, there's been a ton of work, but now even with the SEC and its proposed climate rule, these companies are going to have to report on what they do, what their impact is, and what they're doing with their waste. And that they need solutions. And that's what we're here to support. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's amazing that you're leveraging these technologies that are kind of quote unquote trendy right now, like blockchain, like AI, but you're actually leveraging it as tools to help solve your customers and these brands' pain points. No, exactly. And, you know, of course, there are a lot of companies who are out there just doing it to do it. And that's cool, too, because all these innovations and technologies are pushing things in a new direction, which is exciting to me. I want us to innovate digitally. We're at this crucial moment right now, right? Where we can build for this future and digitally innovate. But at the same time, I am all about a solution and action-oriented. It's one thing, as I said, to read the data, but then what do you do? Once you know you want to be and you've made this commitment to be more sustainable and the laws are changing, you know you have to do it. Where do you go and what do you do on day one? And I feel like a lot of times, especially for larger companies, it almost feels like you don't know what to do and you get stuck in the ground and stuck in the mud and you can't move forward. And that's where I always say, like looking at dead stock and waste and unused inventory, it's the perfect place to start. Sell some of this, free up that valuable warehouse space and make a little money. And then take all the money you make and put it back into doing good work in your supply chain. Then you can pay your workers more. You can adopt more innovative technologies. You can use more sustainable materials. And you can do it without your overall CapEx expenditures going up. And I think that's what really helps give them the blueprint. Then you can grow further up and down the supply chain. End-to-end circularity, zero waste, all of that is the ultimate goal. But I'm a very big proponent of knowing what to do and how to make it actionable on day one and then automate and scale it from there. Awesome. And I have to ask this question because we are talking about dead stock and I would love to get your opinion on this. But a lot of people see dead stock as actually not being sustainable because they argue there's overproduction from brands and mills and factories going on. And then on the other side, too, people argue that dead stock fabric is not quality fabric. So what are your thoughts on those two points? What's interesting, and let's just put out there first and foremost, right, as we kind of talked about dead stock, waste, unused inventory, it is massively expensive. For some of our enterprise customers, and we've run the ROI calculations with them of what it's costing them, it is costing them up to 30% more on top of what the waste costs them every single year to warehouse it, for people to oversee it, for insurance, decaying value, all the obvious. That is very, very expensive. And it eats up sometimes up to 15% or more of their bottom line. So it is not, as a truly well-run operating business, it is not in your best interest to have a lot of dead stock and waste. So, you know, to that idea of people just making it and then selling it because they have a place to sell or just continuing to make a lot, it is very expensive. It is very inefficient. Now, it's true. Historically, especially before the pandemic, things just in fashion were operating so fast, almost unreasonably so. And It just got to where it was more quicker and easier to take, right, to make, to sell it, and whatever was waste, you just kind of pushed under the rug. But now, because of all the forces we just talked about, consumer demand, bottom and top line expense to having this stuff warehoused, changes in the laws, that can't stand anymore. When you're talking about why businesses have this waste, I think a lot of it, especially in fashion, 
is because in many ways they're still doing things the way my great grandfather did in 1896, good old pen and paper. And I'm talking about big, big enterprise companies. I won't mention any and throw them under the rug. I don't believe in doing that. But of course, you know, when you're operating a massive supply chain that way, there's going to be waste and inefficiency. But now we're at this powerful opportunity to build for this supply chain of the future. And I think it is going to be one that is more on demand, more local, more digital, and more sustainable. And as they're doing that with an eye towards that, I think they all recognize they have this huge opportunity now to not just survive what's going on in the world today, but truly thrive and do better tomorrow. And solving the dead stock waste problem is a huge piece of that. It's a problem, but it's also an opportunity. Now, it's funny you mentioned kind of, but what about the quality of it and the actual impact that you have? When people come to our site, everything on it is certified dead stock by us. We have technology tools in place. We are a curated, managed marketplace. Not just anyone and everyone can post right away. There are verification checks and balances and processes we put in place in order to know not just what it is, what it's made of and where it comes from, but when was it made? Has it been sitting there for a certain time period, right? And understanding that otherwise it would be burned or landfilled. So we can verify that it was truly waste and not made yesterday for sale today. But taking it a step further, if you come to our marketplace, you are going to see we sell exotics, leathers, and skins. Everything in our platform is dead stock. But we do have, for those who want just, quote unquote, for lack of a better word, sustainable dead stock, dead stock that has some additional sustainable property to it, it was made in a fair trade factory. It's organic. It's recycled. We do have a category tag sustainable for that. But I also do sell exotics, leathers, and skins because I believe that I can measure the impact of keeping that in circulation longer, someone reusing it as opposed to going out and making new. I can measure that impact. And like I said, I can track it on the blockchain and know and certify that that's the impact that we have. So to me, that matters. Now, maybe you come to my marketplace and if that's not for you, you certainly do not have to buy the exotics and leathers and skins, but that's how we think about it. Taking a very broad view of sustainability, but a very specific view of dead stock and trying to keep these materials in circulation longer. And ultimately, I do agree. I would love that we in the future maybe don't need all the exotics and leathers and skins. And we start from the beginning, designing with minimal waste and using truly innovative, sustainable materials. But we're not there yet. And it is going to take time to get there. But this to me is one way of starting to phase them out, but keeping what's already out there in use before it gets burned or landfill. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to walk us through that because you raised some really good points. And I think it's really good food for thought for folks because people tend to like black and white answers around dead stock is good or dead stock is bad, you know, but a lot of the times there's gray area and there's nuances. And so I appreciate you shedding more light into the situation and giving us your opinion. And so for the dead stock material on the site and in the marketplace, what happens if it's not sold? Like, is there a shelf life that you're looking at for these types of fabrics? And if it's not bought, does it go to landfill or what does that process look like? So anyone, you can list your stuff for as long as you want. Although we do know, especially for certain fibers, there is a shelf life and we try to respect and honor knowing when it was made and how long it's there. But as you can imagine, for our larger companies, they have time limits on when they need this stuff sold. And that's where we have a hierarchy of needs. 
we try in the beginning to sell as much as we can of it. I wish I could sell all of it as we grow globally and build uh, and continue to grow the flywheel. I think we'll be able to do that. But obviously, you know, designers and creators don't always need everything that's there right at that minute. And so for anything that within a certain time period doesn't sell, we have other options for companies. They can recycle it. They can donate it, right? We have a whole suite of now over half a million users and growing globally on every continent where they can partner with those to do something good with it. And so that gives them, you know, continuing an end of life option for anything that maybe doesn't resell. And then obviously going forward with the data, helping them minimize that waste so they don't have as much to resell next year. And we can track that right month over month, year over year for them to help them do better going forward. But absolutely, you know, there is. And the way our machine learning AI algorithm works, we do try to prioritize buyers located or recycling partners or donation partners near where the inventory sits. It kind of, when we first looked at the business model, I was thinking through, does it make sense as a service for me to warehouse it and drop ship it for them? But the cost and the carbon emissions of like building up these warehouses all over the world where this inventory sits and moving it there and then shipping it to a buyer just didn't make sense environmentally or economically. And so now we can prioritize buyers and recyclers and donation partners near where it sits. And that's the best use case. But I'll be honest, obviously designers, creators, makers, they're passionate about wanting what they want when they want it. And so we do still ship things. We use sustainable shipping practices and we offset the costs and the carbon emissions of shipping from the positive of rescuing the fabric. And so it is still a net positive, but I wanted to be clear on that because we do get asked that a lot too. No, I love it. And it seems like you've thought of everything because a lot of brands that pain point is this fabric that's sitting there. They have no idea what to do with it. If it's past its shelf life, you know, what do they do with it? And talking to you, it seems like you've tackled a lot of complex problems and given it a lot of thought. And I'm just curious, how do you approach problems like this? Because we have a lot of slow fashion founders that are also facing big problems like this. And so I'd love your thoughts on how you think strategically, how you break things down, like how does your mind work? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. I think that, you know, as an entrepreneur and as a founder, we're kind of in the business of problem solving, right? And I always liken to it to like the, the world's greatest sculptures, chipping away at that rock piece by piece and the chips fall. And eventually there is this beautiful sculpture. But, you know, all this incredible work that my team and I've been doing for so long always feels like an overnight success, but six to 10 years plus in the making. Right. It takes a lot of time and energy and there are always challenges. I've got a little white stripe in my hair and a little white stripe in my eyebrow now. And I call it my, you know, although it's cool, it's my mark as a founder of, you know, sometimes working through these challenges. But when it comes to problem solving, and obviously you hear my little one in the background, which, you know, is truly an inspiration. It's why I do what I do. It's for my children and future generations. And honestly, that's what gets me through the challenges, knowing that I am measuring this impact and I'm having this impact on the world. And also knowing this, that I'm doing it for my kids. I want them to have clean water to drink, clothes that aren't toxic to and a planet to live on. And in thinking through how to problem solve, I've read a lot of interesting books um, on a lot of unique founders and entrepreneurs. I mean, you mentioned them, right? Like Steve Jobs, obviously, Adam Newman of WeWork. And there's, you know, Elon Musk, of course, um, when I first started following him was before he is obviously the, the incredible mind that is very well known today. And you learn a lot from those books about how to think differently. And I think that's really, you know, you have to break down the problem into its constituent parts 
figure out what are the biggest pain points and the levers that I can actually change and improve and then build it back up. When you do it that way, even the world's biggest problems, like solving the world's water crisis, which is what we're trying to do, they become surmountable because you find these ways to chip away at the block and, and make something beautiful. So, you know, always happy to help and support any founders thinking through it in any way, but there is always um, a, a way to move forward. And, you know, even three steps forward and two steps back is still one step forward. I love it. And diving deeper into the entrepreneurship type questions. I know you've raised $1.5 million, which is amazing. Congratulations. And I know a lot of founders out there too are short capital and might be looking to raise money as well. So do you have any tips or advice, especially as a woman raising money too, because that just adds a layer of complexity? It absolutely does. And I'm totally transparent. We know the numbers are not easy, especially for women in tech, right? Women in sustainability, women in supply chain. I mean... (laughs) You know, although now these have become very hot topics. When we first started the company, it was not uh, as understood. And so we had to spend a lot of time educating. And that is why you see me out there speaking to people a lot, because it was important to me to help investors understand, customers understand, right? Prospective community and world at large understand the value and the opportunity and what we were doing. Some of the little things I did early on that I think are really helpful. One is I created a press sheet before I had any press written about us. And it was just a one pager. And I wrote out kind of what a cool headline on a topic that was trending and interesting around what I do, but not just about me. And then a few sentences of what the article would be about. And I wrote four or five of these little topics and added some cool pictures from our branding and imagery. And I would attach it to every email I sent to anyone. And it just started getting this conversation out there around dead stock, sustainability, supply chain, leveraging blockchain and machine learning. And it started giving press the reasons they could call me on topics that I was an expert in and also to start getting interested in writing articles. And from there, it kind of grows. And, and to be honest, we haven't spent a penny yet in PR marketing or advertising and you know, have had an opportunity to be in a lot of incredible um, publications and honors. So that's one thing we did. The other thing was, One of the most valuable things I did early on, I went to an all-women's school growing up, and it was really encouraged that you think differently, which we kind of talked about, and obviously go have bold, big, strong visions and build a business and go change the world. But in order to do that, we actually started with public speaking training in like first or second grade in school. And I continue to take it to this day because I always want to improve. How you articulate your value prop and speak is so critical. In order to kind of hone in even a little bit more on not just taking public speaking, but do every competition that's out there. I applied to all those competitions for women in tech, women in sustainability, right, in fashion and supply chain, because you never know what you're going to win. And some of the ones that we won put us on stage with two celebrities, got us investors, got us some of our first biggest enterprise customers, and some great press came out of it, right? And, and, And that's how you grow from there. The hardest thing I ever did, honestly, in my entrepreneurial journey to date, I was on a big stage and I was given um, the opportunity to pitch Ashton Kutcher, Gary Vee, and P. Diddy. The trick was I had 60 seconds to do it. So, you know, not your 20 minute investor pitch, not your even five minute investor pitch, not your three minute pitch, 60 seconds to tell them everything and why they should invest in you. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done to date. But if I tell you, even though I you know, pitched this in 2018, I still use the lines of those pitch today. And it very much informs our core vision and our mission. Our solution has grown. Our technology has grown. 
but the core vision and the mission still stays true to that 60 second pitch. So another little thing that to work on, because if you can convince someone in 60 seconds, an investor, a customer, the world at large, you got something and, and don't be afraid. I love that. Yeah, that's a lot of great tangible tips and also really honing in your vision and your mission and your why, right? Like you really need to understand that so you can go forth and make that impact that you want to have. It's really important. And and kind of a funny little personal story is you heard my kids and I mentioned why I do what I do. I was pushing the stroller one day. My oldest son at the time was just turning three and I was pushing him in the stroller in the New York City streets. And it was really loud. And there was, you know, New York City, a lot going on. And I hear something muffled coming out of the stroller. And I leaned in to hear further. And all I hear was, are you naked right now? No, because you're using fabric. It's everywhere and it's polluting your water. This little kid was doing my 60 second pitch. Now, on the one hand, I realized, okay, maybe that means as a working mom, I mean, maybe I've been practicing my pitch a little too much as I push the stroller. But then I thought about like, you know what, if he can get it, anyone in the world can get it and we can and we'll change the world. So a little bit that inspires me too. Oh my gosh, that story is so cute and so funny at the same time. And speaking of kids, we do have quite a few female founders that listen to this podcast. And so a lot of them are either thinking of starting a family or they have a family. And so do you believe in balance? And if so, or if not, like, how do you maintain balance in your life with working and also being a mom? I mean, yes, and yes, I believe in balance. But is there ever perfect balance? No, but I am stronger and better as a mom that because I'm a working mom, then for me, and I'm only speaking from my experience for me, I would be if not for that work. I actually launched Queen of Raw at the same time as I I had my first child. Some ways that can definitely feel scary and overwhelming. In other ways, it actually only made me stronger as a businesswoman and an entrepreneur. Yes, in some ways, your time is a little more limited, but you learn how to be so much more efficient with your time, so much more clear with your thoughts. Like I said, helping if if a three-year-old can understand what I'm doing, then I'm explaining it in a way that makes sense, right, to others. And it also meant I was up at funny hours so I could be working with our Asian counterparts and whatever, right? At different hours. And I just think that you put all that together. And if you're truly happy and feel like you're making a difference or doing something, you're doing better for your children and you're doing better for, for your work. And so for me, I couldn't imagine life any other way. I know through the pandemic for a lot of moms, obviously, as you hear mine in the background and I'm working today in my home, it is not easy. I absolutely, I'm here to reach out a hand and support and get that. But I do know, even with them in the background, if I weren't here doing what I'm doing with you, I, I, it wouldn't be as fulfilling for me. And then when we finish, I can go be with them and spend some quality time, which is how I like to start and end my days. So I think it just helps ground both and that I'm stronger in both because of it. You know, for anyone out there trying, struggling or balancing that, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to support in any way. But just know that it is truly possible. You can do this if it's what you want to do, and it will only make you stronger in the end. Yeah, I've been asking this question to a few women in business, and it's been really inspiring because a lot of them have had similar answers to you around really needing to fill up your own cup before you can help and fill up other people's cups. So yeah, I think it's really true. In society, I feel like there is this narrative of the fact that women cannot quote unquote have it all or it's going to be really difficult and it's going to be a struggle. And so has it always been relatively, I won't even say easy, but like simple for you to balance it or what did you do to help? 
be honest, in the beginning, early on, there was a moment because I didn't take any time off officially, although, of course, I, w- I was home and part of the pandemic has been great because I've been home even more, although I still have my you know team in office at the same time. Part of what's been early on, there was a moment when I felt a little bit of mom guilt. And, you know, my son had actually gotten to the age where he's asking, you know, why is mommy leaving to go to the office? So I actually did this. I set him up with an office at home. And I said, you know what? Mommy's going to her office. You go to your office and start building your business. What would that look like? How would you want to go change the world? And let him feel a part of what I'm doing. That and also letting him, he comes in on some of my meetings when it's appropriate. He's been in videos. You may have seen him online with me and it's his choice. But when they want to participate, I want them to be a part of this because they are very much a driving force for me behind it. And him feeling that way, like he had his office, he could build a business and go change the world. He understands what mommy's do and he's a part. He does my pitch, right? Made him feel closer to me in some ways. And hopefully it starts him on his own journey and he can be the, uh, the king or prince of whatever raw domain he wants to be in the future. And uh, again, we're all better and stronger because of it. Oh, I love that you gave him his own office. And I really appreciate how you're able to integrate your children seamlessly into your working life. And I think that's really valuable because a lot of people try to keep it really separate and say that this is my work life and this is my home life. But to your point, I think you can really try to manage and bridge them together so that you can have a more fulfilling life overall. Of course, you see me in my bedroom and I've got my little gate on the side of the bed because, of course, sometimes my little ones are in bed with me and it's wonderful and delicious. And that's life, right? I could have taken it down, but we are who we are. And that's, I think, in some ways, what's been interesting, too, about the pandemic, as much as it has been for many, very stressful and time, money and resources for us. It also has been very close as for families and, and brought some together and it humanizes us. This is me. This is my life. This is how I am. Right. And there's something so real and honest and authentic in that. And I don't know if that would have happened if not for the pandemic. So it's been a nice opportunity to connect to people uh, on a personal level as well as professional. And so at the beginning of the episode, you mentioned that you started a business during the 2008 financial crisis. And with the pandemic, there were similarities in how the economy reacted. And so there are a lot of founders now that have either just scraped by or they're thinking about starting a business now. So what pieces of advice would you have given that you went through the last big recession? You look at what's going on in the world, and I think so many people, and it's understandable, you get overwhelmed and scared, right? Like, how am I going to build a business now? How am I going to juggle it all? Where am I going to find investor dollars and the resources to do this? I'll be honest. I think recessions, economic downturns, pandemics, periods of uncertainty are the best time to start a business. And a couple of reasons why. When you go through experiences like what we're going on in the world today or what I saw in 08 and 09, you're seeing what's broken in a system. What isn't working? Where are the breaks in a supply chain? Where's the waste and the greed and the excess and the challenges? And then you break out that problem and turn it into an opportunity, right? How can I solve that or at least one piece of it? And starting to think through that, your customers have the greatest demand now for what you're doing than ever before. And some of the biggest and best businesses are truly born through recessions and economic downturns. I could go on and list them. You can Google them. They're they're all over. You can see. How do you turn this into an opportunity? And, you know, now is the greatest time to do it. The world is listening. People are at home listening and they're looking for solutions and trying to be a part of something greater. And you can help them do that. 
And when it comes to actually meeting, not just the idea and executing on it, but the idea that talent is digital and remote, we can get access to talent that we never could before when you had to be in a physical space in our offices in New York City. But now we are you know, digital and remote and can have access to talent and resources we never could before. And the final piece, which is the obvious piece on fundraising, we actually raised our first round. We had been bootstrapped very long, and I truly believe in using money efficiently for the right reasons and to grow and scale when you really know what you need to build. So we bootstrapped for a long time, and we actually ended up raising our first round right during the beginning of the last pan- of the pandemic, which obviously many people might think that's a crazy time to raise. For us, it was the best time. Demand was through the roof. There was a need for we're doing more than ever. And we have incredible lead investors from our last round who sit on our board But to be honest, I actually yet haven't met them in person. We know each other very well. We call, we email, we do events together virtually. I I mean, we're very close. And I still haven't met them in person. So it is possible to raise during the pandemic. And now we're getting out and going to be raising our next round. So don't let this dissuade you. Now can be the best time. And it truly helps you figure out what do my customers need? What's the pain point I'm solving? And go and execute. So I believe in you. Yeah, that's so well said. And I also will say that there's no perfect timing or perfect time to do anything, right? Like there's always going to be ups and downs in the economy. So start your business or keep flourishing. And I also think in times like this, this is when true entrepreneurs are born, right? You get so resilient and so resourceful and that can be really powerful. Yep. Absolutely, without a doubt. And the interesting thing too, of course, we kind of talked about it, but through the pandemic now, these issues of diversity, sustainability, right? Supply chain, fashion opportunities. This is top of mind for everyone in ways it just wasn't before. So I think you also may not have the uphill battle and the education time. You always need to educate your community, but it won't quite be the same lift as we kind of experienced early on. Hopefully things now people have woken up and the time is ripe. Yes, 100%. And I'm curious, do you have any books or podcasts that you really enjoy and you would recommend? Yeah. So I think there, I mean, there are a ton out there. Obviously podcast, how I built this is incredible. Um, It really breaks down for an entrepreneur and a founder, how things get built, how you add value. And I love reading the books, as I kind of mentioned about Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Adam Newman, like all the world's most interesting, unique thinkers. Obviously there's now the Theranos story going around. You just learn so much from those who came before you and how they think and how to solve challenges and problems. As a founder, one little tidbit and thing that I found really helpful early on, I started a journal and not a personal journal, um, but uh, a, a journal on when there was a challenge, just little notes of what the challenge was and how we solved it. Maybe not how we solved it, but how we were thinking about it at the time and keeping track of those, even if you can't execute, solve or build everything overnight, it becomes a great blueprint and roadmap of what you were thinking at the time, how you were thinking things. And then you just start to iterate on that. And so that kind of note taking and thinking can be very helpful as you prioritize what you're doing and think about these learnings from these, there's great wealth of knowledge in these podcasts and books out there. So Take advantage of it for sure. And feel free to reach out to, to any entrepreneur anytime and right and, and talk about it. Great groups out there as well to talk in real time about it. And to wrap things up, are there any other pieces of advice that you would like to share with our audience? You know, I think as founders and entrepreneurs, especially women in business, we some tend to hold things very close to their chest. And in this business, I do believe you've, it is a business. 
You're in the business of sales. You're selling to investors. You're selling to customers. You're selling to the world at large. Sometimes crazy, bold ideas that we had plenty of no's and doors in our face in the beginning, people who didn't get it. Fortunately, a lot of those no's have turned to yeses, but it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. And the one thing I would say is don't be afraid. We want to hold it close to our chest. Get it perfect. Get it right before you put it out there. Get that website up there. Get that point of view. Even if you have no product to, stay up, to sell, start learning from your customers, from the demand, from the opportunities. And then iterate on your product and your solution, right? We grew from a marketplace to software, from independent designers to, to now Fortune 500. So it will grow and iterate and change. And I think that's the way you can truly be the last player in the market to truly dominate. So don't be afraid. Yeah, I think that's really helpful for folks. And what is next for Queen of Raw? What are you excited about? Yeah, really excited. Obviously, we're growing our software and tools. Um, ultimately, to me, I believe very much in fashion and textiles. As much as they are the challenge to the world's water crisis, they are also the opportunity, I believe, to solving the world's water crisis. But I've always said, when it comes to waste, fashion and textiles is just the beginning. So I'm really excited as we grow to take this across raw material categories, across industries and around the world, because when we all leverage each other's resources and tools and turn those into opportunities, I mean, all of us are stronger together as businesses and as consumers. So that's where we're excited to grow. Amazing. That's really exciting. And I can't wait to follow along on the journey. And last but not least, but what are your links? How can people reach out and how can they support you? Appreciate that. Obviously, for our open marketplace, it's queenofraw.com. Feel free to reach out. I'm very public about my information. I'm at stephanie at queenofraw.com and I give up my cell phone. It's 1-646-583-0076. And I do it intentionally because I am here to support, to help. We are all in this together and together we can solve the world's water crisis and change the world. Amazing. Well, thanks again for sitting down with me, Stephanie. And I know that our listeners are going to get a lot out of this episode. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that concludes this episode. If you enjoyed it, please take a screenshot, share it to your Instagram stories, and tag us at Recloseted. Make sure you subscribe to our Recloseted Radio podcast on your preferred podcast platform so that new episodes are automatically downloaded and you don't miss any of our free resources. Lastly, don't forget to rate our podcast five stars and leave us a positive review. That really helps us and continues to allow us to provide this podcast for free. Together, let's write the harmful fashion industry.